Great and gracious God, you are exalted over the nations, and your glory extends high above the heavens. No one like you who is enthroned on high, who stoops down to look on the heavens and the earth. You raise the poor from the dust and the needy from the ash heap. Raise our spirits from despondency and discouragement and show us again how you bring beauty from ashes. You set your poor servants in the courts of kings and you bring the childless woman into the joy of a fruitful home. Bring us into your courts with joy and speak your royal word to us. Bring us into your house and bring us fullness of joy as your word resounds. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. The first scripture reading is taken from Psalm 113. If you wish to read along, please turn back to the first page. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, you, his servants. Praise the name of the Lord. Let the name of the Lord be praised both now and forevermore. From the rising of the sun to the place where it sets, the name of the Lord is to be praised. The Lord is exalted over all the nations, his glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God, the one who sits enthroned on high, who stoops down to look on the heavens and the earth? He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. He seats them with princes, with the princes of his people. He settles the childless woman in her home as a happy mother of children. Praise the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Maybe this is the Lord's way of saying, stop talking about translations and just preach the word of God. (laughs) But I I hope you understand that there is this distinction then in how translations work. You either clear up the, the confusion or you leave the confusion there and let it be, right? And both of those are helpful. The NIV, which we use, is one of those translations that likes to, if possible, remove the ambiguity, clear it up. And so they've done that a couple times in this text in places that are a little bit unclear in the original. And before I read, I'll just point out uh, these couple things to you and tell you what I think probably is happening in the original. Really, I should probably have Philip Lassiter come up and tell us what it really means. But here's my best take. Okay, there's a couple things. Verse 3 here, Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was a very large city. It seems, okay, so at the literal level, the Hebrew says that Nineveh was an important city to either the gods or to God. Either an important city to the gods or to God. I don't know which one of those is, but the NIV just decides that it's an important city, period, or a large city, which is also to say important, right? I think it's probably that it is an important city to the gods. In other words, Nineveh has made a relationship with the gods of this world, 
And the gods of this world have a stronghold there in Nineveh. And that's one of the reasons Jonah is coming, is to say who's really God of this city. But it could work the other way as well. This is a city, after all, that our God, the true one God, loves, and it is important to him. So that's one thing. And then in that same verse, it says, it took three days to go through it. Verse 4, Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city. It seems like uh, this is a Hebrew way of saying, actually, not that it took three days to go through the city, but rather that the city was a long ways away. Sort of shorthand, it would take actually more than three days to get to Nineveh, but it's a long ways away from where Jonah was, but he's going to go there anyway. And then in order to say it's just a short way, the Hebrews would say, it's just a stone's throw. Jonah went a stone's throw into the city. He went one day's journey into the city, right? Does that make sense? Just wanted to point a couple of those things out to you um, and what I maybe think is, is going on there in the text. None of these ambiguities really affect the understanding of, of the, the gospel for sure, but maybe can help us understand what's, this, what's going on in this story a little bit better. Okay. Lesson over. Um, I'll get back to preaching the word of God. Let's read God's word together. In fact, why don't we read it together with, with one voice? You can read in unison with me. Jonah 3, 1 through 10. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. The Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. This is the proclamation he issued in Nineveh. By the decree of the king of Nineveh and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink. But let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, by now we are in actually our sixth meditation on the book of Jonah, and we followed Jonah on a journey, first of all, downward. Remember? Downward, trying to get away from the presence of the Lord, Jonah, because he doesn't want to go to Nineveh, he goes down to Joppa, he goes down into the cabin of the ship, he goes down into a deep sleep, down into the sea, down into the belly of the great fish, and down all the way to the very door of death itself. Chapter 2 ends with a poem from the pit of darkness and despair. And in that poem, you remember Jonah 
who can't escape from God's presence as much as he would like, he has his spiritual awakening, his aha moment. And he says something that lies at the very center of the whole Bible, at the very heart of human history itself. He says, salvation comes from the Lord. And the poem and the prayer at the end of chapter 2 is received by the Lord God as repentance and faith. The Lord summons the fish to spit Jonah onto the dry land, and Jonah emerges in chapter 3, a different man than he was at the beginning of the story. Different how? Well, at the very obvious level, Jonah smells a little bit different by now, right? Smells a little different than he did when he was serving in the court of the Israelite king, now that he has spent a little time in the belly of a fish. But he's also had a sort of back-from-the-dead experience. He could write maybe a best-selling book about this experience. Maybe he did, in fact. He had a discovery of God's grace and his salvation. God has been patient, and he's been absolutely determined to save Jonah. And God's salvation, Jonah now knows, is stronger than death itself. God's grace outruns runaway prophets, and it meets Jonah in the depths of the sea and even in the pit of the fish's stomach. And now Jonah is ready, finally, to be God's prophet, isn't he? Now Jonah has experienced God's salvation himself. Now he's qualified to speak God's salvation. And now we will see what Jonah does once he's once again standing on dry ground and he's no longer running from God's face. And so one scholar puts this well at the beginning of Jonah chapter 3. In chapter 3, the plot rewinds and it begins again. And in fact, the first three verses of chapter 3 are in direct parallel to the first three verses of the book. Once again, the word of the Lord comes to Jonah, go and preach, say what I tell you. But this time, he actually goes. And after a thousand or more kilometers, depending on where he washed up on the beach, he arrives at Nineveh and he has a simple message. 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. And I think that this scene here, it poses a question. Will the invincible imperial city, will it really respond to the Lord and to his word like the vulnerable vessel on the stormy seas did? You see, it's one thing to be lost at sea and to turn to God. But what if you're in the comfort of your own home with your walls around you? I don't think actually that Jonah expects repentance from the city of Nineveh. I think every expectation of his is that Nineveh will, best case scenario, that Nineveh will laugh at him and will laugh him right out of town. But he walks through the streets and he's not very far into his preaching. And it's obvious that nobody is laughing. No one is scoffing at him. No one's attacking him. No one is blaspheming his God. No one's calling for war on his country on account of his preaching. Instead, what are they doing? They're listening. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, go and say what I'll tell you to say. He goes and says what he's told to say. Out comes 
a, in Hebrew, a five-word sermon, 40 days till Nineveh's destroyed. And they knew that it was the voice of God. And they were cut right to the heart. Now, the real question that you might wonder, and that our author uh, tells us, the real question is, well, fine, what happens, though, when the word goes from the streets into the very palace of the emperor? What's the king going to do? And when this five-word sermon reaches the king's ear, he gets up out of his chair, he stands up, and all eyes and ears, as it were, were on him. What's his judgment going to be? Will he summon his guards to go and arrest Jonah, to beat him, maybe to publicly execute him, make an example of him? Will the king find out that he's an Israelite? And will he mobilize the imperial army and go attack his home country? Or will the king simply start laughing? Will he start taunting the God of Israel and try to overthrow, that that this God would try to overthrow his city? Will he fear that maybe this threat is real? And instead of laughing, he secures the city walls and the gates and he puts the archers up in the towers and sets an ambush for the army that he expects. What's he going to do? But instead, the king stands up and does what nobody expects. He repents. He repents. And he leads his city, this most notoriously wicked and brutal city, perhaps in the whole world, into repentance. So instead of holding out his scepter when he stands up and summoning his troops in a power display, he comes down off of his throne, which means kind of like what I just did. You come down the stairs as well, and now you're on the same level as everyone else. Everyone else, And he says, let's go even lower Let's put on sackcloth. Let's find some dirt and get it all over us as we lie together in humility. In fact, he says, and this is really funny, he says, find all the cows and put them in sackcloth as well and tell them to get on the ground with you. Nobody eats, not the king, not the goats. Nobody drinks, not the nobles, not the prostitutes. No one proposes a toast and nobody consumes even a calorie. Because they've realized, haven't they, that their only need is for the debts of their wickedness to somehow be canceled. For the wages of their sin to be paid by somebody else. And so there's nothing to do for them but to seek the favor of Jonah's God. And so the whole city lies in dust together, waiting for the mere possibility of God's mercy. And while they lie in the dust, text tells us, verse 9, that they turn from their violent ways. They turn toward one another instead of being in a hierarchy of conflict with one another. After all, they're all on the ground together. Everything that made Nineveh, Nineveh, is put on hold, is overthrown, you might say. And in this hush of sorrow and reflection, at least a moment of justice comes across the city. Nineveh believed God. They heard Jonah, but they believed God. Isn't that something? 
But now imagine with me what is going through Jonah's mind and his heart as he sees the surprising success of his little sermon. Every time someone hears and heeds his short little sermon and they stop in their tracks and they repent in dust and sackcloth, I wonder if Jonah is confronted with the contrast between his own encounter with the word of the Lord and the encounter of the Ninevites with that same word of the Lord. Jonah, go to Nineveh and preach. Jonah goes to Tarshish, or he tries to instead, fleeing from the face of God. Forty days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Nineveh drops everything and humbles themselves under God's mighty right hand. Who's supposed to be the quickest to repent? Is it supposed to be wicked Ninevites or Israel's prophets? Who's supposed to hear and to heed the word of God with more reverence and humility? Is it supposed to be clueless pagan soldiers and sailors? Or is it supposed to be the man who is set apart for God's holy purposes to begin with? Who's supposed to be the first to remember that they are just frail dust, dependent on God for life and for breath itself? Is it supposed to be the Assyrian cattle? Or is it supposed to be Israel's religious professional class? Just imagine how the the first Israelite readers of this story would have reacted as they read it. I think they would laugh, like us, because it's funny. But they would also realize it's funny because it's true. And then they would probably cry with conviction. Because they would realize, as we should also, they would say, we are Jonah. Lord, make us more like Assyrian cows. Just imagine how the God of Israel would react as his people down through the centuries read this story as they walked with Jonah into wicked Nineveh and saw it bowing in the dust before God's presence. Well, the Lord too, I think, would laugh because it's funny. He knows it's funny because it's true. And so the Lord too would cry with grief. Grief that his chosen people, the ones that are called to be his prophetic voice among the nations. But these people had become less sensitive to his voice than the nations to which they were called to bear witness. Less humble than pagan kings and even pagan cows. But the Lord, it's important to understand, does not just laugh. And he does not just weep. When his own people no longer hear his voice, clear as it is, well, he comes right up to their ears, doesn't he? And he whispers grace and truth into their ears and into their hearts. The Lord says, okay, my people, read this dark comedy. These four chapters of satire, of the story of your own hard hearts, read it. Read this story of my hot pursuit of you, a pursuit full of grace. Read it for a few hundred years. Let it sink in. And then when the time had fully come, the Heavenly Father gets up from his throne 
and he looks for another Jonah, a truer and a better Jonah. And he says to his new prophet, arise, go to Bethlehem, go to Judea, go to Nazareth, go to Capernaum, and proclaim to them the message that I give you. And instead of running away, of course, the Lord Jesus goes. He goes with all the father's grief over the wickedness of this world that he so loves. He goes with all the father's pain over the hypocrisy, not just of the world, but especially of his chosen people. But he also goes with the father's hope that the mission and ministry of his people in the world is not, after all this disappointment, is not a lost cause. Because after all, God's word is true and powerful. And he goes with the power of God's God's word in his own voice and in his own person. He goes to the local synagogue with not many more people or maybe even less people than our little gathering this morning. And he teaches these little congregations God's word. And he speaks. And people immediately recognize what Nineveh recognized in his voice. The authority of God's own voice. This guy is not speaking on his own behalf, but on behalf of the God of all. And we had better listen. Meanwhile, though, when the king, when Herod heard that God's word had come in the person of Jesus, Herod also gets up off his throne and renders a judgment, doesn't he? But he doesn't get up off his throne and say, the word of the Lord has come among us. He gets up off his throne not to proclaim a fast from food and water from the greatest to the least. He doesn't arise and say, prepare ye the way of the Lord. But rather, he institutes a plan, a decree, that all the young Hebrew boys under the age of two would be put to death. And his mass infanticide there in Jerusalem and Judea, it makes ancient Nineveh look like a holy city by comparison. Jesus, the true Jonah, the true prophet of God's salvation, he comes into the world of an infanticidal king. And finally, at the end of his life, God's salvation and his true king, Jesus, is cut off from the world that he so loves. This time by a homicidal religious mob that's supported by the pagan rulers and soldiers. Jesus gets off of his throne and he humbles himself all the way into the dust of death. In fact, theologians will tell us that in a mysterious way, Jesus repents of our sin himself, even though he knew no sin. And he takes that guilt himself and he bears it. And when he bears it, he is overthrown. He is overturned. He had his 40 days of fasting and prayer and devotion in the wilderness. He had his 33 years of faithful living and his three years of powerful but humble ministry to the least of these. Obedience to his father's voice. And Jesus, the true and faithful Jonah, is overthrown. 
Overthrown like the wicked city Nineveh deserved. Overthrown like Jonah, the covenant-breaking Israelite prophet, deserved. Overthrown like we, the wandering sheep, who go astray and we go astray and we go astray, and we never want to put sackcloth on, but just keep going astray like we deserved. I think there's actually only one thing that's more surprising maybe in the Bible than the word of God breaking through into the hard hearts of the Ninevites. That's surprising. But the only thing more surprising is that the soft-hearted word of God, Jesus, rends the heavens and comes down and he speaks himself in grace to hard-hearted people like you and me. We're in this year of out. We're trying to move outward. We want to respond to God's call. If he says, who will go? Whom shall I send? We want to be ready, don't we? To say, here I am. Send me. Here are we. Send us. Do we want to respond to God's call? Do we want to be real prophets of God? Do we want to be together a prophetic people of God? Do we want to faithfully tell of his grace and his truth? I think it requires this, just this one thing. It requires complete surprise over and over again. Not only that salvation is from the Lord, but that salvation from the Lord could be ours by grace. When all that we have done in word and in deed, and even in the attitudes of our own private hearts, is ask for our lives and for our world to be overthrown. But thanks be to God. And may we be his humble prophets together, bearing his good news and speaking and living authentically in God's word. Because this grace and truth has been ours in our very experience. Friends, we have to experience the radical grace and compassion of our Lord God if we are to go to our neighbor and show it in word and deed. And may that be true of us in the season ahead. Amen. Father in heaven, thank you for your word which convicts as well as refreshes and encourages us. Seal it to our hearts. Hide it there that we might not sin in arrogance against you, but also make it flourish and sprout up and blossom from our hearts so that it might yield fruit in our relationships with our neighbors. Do all of this not for our own glory or esteem, but for the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we submit ourselves humbly to him afresh in his name. Amen.